And so take a moment to calm your mind and also to reset your motivation. Okay, so there were three questions that were left from this morning. I'll go through them briefly, and then we'll continue with the text. So someone asked, how can we use logic to discern that we've mistaken a discordant cause for a concordant cause? Well, if you look at uh, the result of what you got, and it doesn't match what you thought it was, then you know you had you were attributing a discordant cause to uh, to that result, uh, or yeah, you could just check the, a little bit more deeply and see is that cause really the cause of that result, or are there other factors that could be the cause? Okay, so for example. Um, Often when we're angry, we say, oh, that person made me so angry. Okay, so meaning they are the cause of my anger. Yeah, that person is the cause of my anger. Okay, but if we look closely, it isn't really that person that's the cause of our anger. Okay, the principal cause of our anger is that we have the seed of anger inside of us. We haven't eliminated that seed of anger. And so when someone does something that we think is we don't agree with or that affects us adversely, then we say they are the cause. But it's the seed of anger in our own mind that is the actual cause. Why? Because we can also see that when that person says those same words, not everybody gets angry. If what that person said were the cause of my anger, they made me angry, then what they said would make everybody angry. Okay, but it doesn't. Why? And it's not necessarily because they don't have the seed of anger inside of them, but because I have not only the seed of anger in me, but I also take those words personally, and my self-centered mind doesn't like it. Yeah. So that's a good example of misattributing the cause of our feelings, isn't it? Yeah. Do you ever think that when you get annoyed? Yeah, that maybe you you do think, oh, the real cause is, is the seat of anger in me? 
No, you think the real cause is the other person. Yeah. But it's not the other person. Okay. Then a uh, second question is, so there isn't a first cause for everything to arise, or we don't know what that cause is. No, it's we do not, there is not a first cause. If there were a first cause, how did that cause arise? What created that cause? Did it come out of nothing? Out of nothing can something arise? Something that functions, that is a cause, that is produced, must be produced from a previous cause. It cannot just arise without a cause. Okay? If we said that things arise without a cause, yeah, then, I mean, why doesn't it happen now? Very often things happen unexpectedly to us, but they still have causes. Yeah? And sometimes things... We cannot identify the cause, so we say it's magic, but actually there is a cause. Okay, so there, what, there's no first cause. <coughs> it's kind of like mm, when you're in math class and, you know, there's negative numbers and there's positive numbers and there's no uh, first number on the negative side, and there's no last number on the positive number side. And you may say, well, there has to be. But my saying there has to be doesn't mean that there is. <laughs> okay? Because if I search and I try and find the first number on the negative side, the last number on the positive side, I can't find it. Yeah, Because it doesn't exist. Okay, then the next question is, um, in speaking about the causes and conditions as to why some people were at the towers and some people were not when the planes hit them, how does karma uh, have a role in this? Or does karma have a role in this? For instance, could the ripening of one's karma uh, have created the cause for them to have been at the towers and subsequently killed? Yes, that very much has to do with karma, okay? Because in previous lives, we may have uh, created the cause to have uh, this, you know, what they call an untimely death. In other words, you still have life, a lifespan left, but uh, an incident happens in an untimely way that cuts your lifespan short. So that uh, that happens because of karma, you know, the karma created in past lives. Okay, um, I say this to Buddhist groups, but I do not say this to people who are not Buddhist, because if they don't understand karma, then they get very upset if they think that uh, you know their loved one 
did something in a previous life that caused this kind of result. That's very upsetting to them. So I don't explain that to, to people who don't believe in karma. Okay, back to our book, page on page seven towards the bottom. Okay, so if Buddhists do not accept a self, who takes rebirth? Okay, so this is the thing. The Buddhists do accept a self, but not an inherently existent one, and not a permanent, unitary, independent one. Although the Buddha refutes a self that exists independent of all other factors, he accepts a conventional self that is dependent on causes, conditions, and parts. This self is designated independence on the body and mind, so the question of whether the self has a beginning depends on if the body and mind have beginnings. The body is material in nature. Scientists currently say that all matter can be traced back to the Big Bang. How did the Big Bang occur? There must have been some material substances, energy, or potential for matter that existed before the Big Bang, and conditions must have been such that it exploded. Here, too, we see that things must have causes that are affected by other conditions and therefore change and give rise to something new, and that those causes must be in accord with the kind of result that they bring. Okay? Our, then, so that's on the physical side, the, the side of matter you know, in the universe. Then regarding the mind... Our minds change moment by moment. The mind is impermanent and arises due to causes that have the ability to produce each moment of mind. Okay, so the first moment of mind in this life, it's the first moment in this life. It doesn't mean it's the first moment ever. Okay, but the first moment of mind in this life has a cause because without a cause, it could not exist. The cause of our minds was not our parents' minds because both of our parents have their own individual continuity of consciousness, as do we. Okay. If uh, our minds were, um, you know, break off parts of our parents' minds, then our parents did lose their mind when they had us. <laughs> okay. But the substantial cause of our minds, the cause that turns into the mind, cannot be our bodies or the sperm and egg of our parents because the mind and body have different natures. The mind is formless and has the nature of clarity and cognizance, while the body has physical and material characteristics. The only thing we can point to as the cause of the first moment of mind in this life is the previous moment of that mind stream in the previous life. Okay, So this continuity can be traced back infinitely with one moment of mind producing the next moment of mind. There is no beginning. So with both 
the side of matter and the side of consciousness, we can't find an original cause. Okay, then there's a reflection. So there's reflections throughout the book. These reflections um, are very good reviews about the section that we just read. They're also very good meditation outlines. And so you can use them uh, in your analytic meditation. So here, first reflections. Consider, first, everything that is produced arises from causes. Nothing can arise causelessly. So here you would think of all the different things that you come in contact with and really think how they arise from causes, not from causelessly not causelessly, not out of nothing, okay? And then second, to contemplate that causes are impermanent. They must cease in order for their result to arise. So going back and thinking of all these things, you know, you can think of relationships, people, events, physical properties. At lunch, we were talking about gravity, you know, so... Uh, you can consider all of those things. And then, you know, the causes are impermanent and that they have to cease in order to produce something new. Where we may get confused is when the thing they produce that is new looks like the thing that was the cause. And that makes us think that the thing didn't change. Okay because it looks just exactly the way it looked before, or it functions the way it looked before. But actually, when you talk about things, okay, in a continuity, like we were talking about gravity, yeah, you have the first moment of gravity, yeah, the second moment of gravity, like when something's falling, yeah, you have the gravity when it first is released, then the second moment of gravity, the third moment of gravity, as it falls, there's different moments of gravity, okay? And so those, uh, you know, they, they change because the relationship between the object and the center of gravity is changing, right? Did I get it right? Yeah, our physicist approves. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Okay, so... Uh, you know, it really makes you think of how how these things work, yeah, and how the result ceases for the uh, uh, how the cause ceases for the result <coughs> to arise. Okay, then three, there is a concordance between a cause and its result. Okay, a specific result can only arise from the causes and conditions that are capable of producing it. Okay, and those causes and conditions are plentiful. So we cannot always isolate every single cause and condition. When we talk about causes, we're talking about the principal thing. In terms of uh, many things, we talk about the substantial cause. So it's the actual thing that ceases and, and turns into the result. The cooperative conditions are things surrounding that cause that facilitated changing, okay? So 
we we always use the example of seeds. Um, yeah, we used to joke when we used to go to uh, our our Majmika class that we're going to gardening class. Yeah, because we're always talking about seeds and sprouts. But if if you look at it, um, you know, there's a relationship between the seed and the sprout. One has to cease for the other one to arise. Yeah, things are not uh, causeless. Yeah. And there is, yeah, there has to, to be a definite relationship. And... There's many, like I said, many causes and uh, many conditions. So for the seed, you need water, you need fertilizer, you need heat, okay? The seed needs to be planted uh, in the correct season. It needs to be a certain distance from the top of the earth. There's so many different things. So when all these are right, then it sprouts, Okay. And then uh, the fourth point is apply this understanding to the existence of the physical universe and of your mind. And, you know, spend some time really thinking of how your mind is a continuum of one moment of clarity and awareness producing the next moment of clarity and awareness. But how each moment is different because there's different mental factors that accompany each moment of clarity and awareness. You know, there's some constant mental factors, but they too change moment by moment. And then there's other mental factors that appear in some moments of mind, but not in other moments of mind. Okay? So it's very good, you know, think about, yeah, think about your own mind. And, and how it works, how it functions in that way. Okay, then the third question is, is there an end to the self? So within Buddhism, there are two positions regarding this question. Some Vibhasikas, uh, that's one of the lower Buddhist tenant schools, say that when an arhat, someone who has attained liberation from samsara, when uh, that person passes away, which is called they attain nirvana without the remainder of the polluted aggregates, uh, those people say that when that arhat dies, the continuum of the person ceases to exist like a flame of a lamp going out due to a lack of fuel. So in the example, uh, the flame is the continuity of consciousness. The fuel is craving. Okay? So when craving is overcome by an arhat, then there's no, uh, there's nothing that causes that, that mind stream to be reborn in samsara. And so this particular school says, therefore, uh, the conscious, the stream of consciousness ceases. Okay. Because the polluted aggregates are produced by afflictions and karma, when arhats pass away, there is no continuity of their aggregates since their causes, afflictions and polluted karma, have been ceased. Okay. 
That's how they, how they explain it. Because the aggregates are necessary for the existence of a person, okay, when the, aggre the aggregates are referring to the body and mind, so when, uh, because they're ne necessary for the existence of the person, they say that the person no longer exists because the aggregates no longer exist. However, there are difficulties with this assertion. Because when the person is alive, when the, you know somebody attains nirvana, uh, they don't pass away in that very moment. They continue to live. They're a liberated being. So when that person is alive, there is no nirvana without remainder of the polluted aggregates because they're alive, so they have the remainder of the polluted aggregates. Here, it, the polluted aggregates means that when they were born, they, their aggregates were uh, arose under the influence of karma and afflictions. Okay, so they still have that same body that they had when they were born, but they are now a liberated being. Okay, but they still have the same body, so they have the remainder of the polluted aggregates. Okay. So when the person's alive, there is no nirvana without remainder of the polluted aggregates. Yeah. And when the, that nirvana has been attained after that person passes away, then according to their system, there is no person who attained nirvana. In that case, how can we say this person attained this nirvana? Okay, so that's the difficulty. Do, do, do you understand? Yeah. So, so that's the difficulty in that assertion. Furthermore, okay, His Holiness is saying, there uh, actually is nothing that can eradicate the mind stream, the continuity of mind. Yeah. So, you know, some things have... Uh, they have a substantial cause, like this building, you know, the, the Fawz wall and everything else that constructed it is the substantial cause. But there can be an external factor that destroys the building, you know, like, uh, you know, if you want to tear it down, then you bring in, what do you call it? What do you, with the, yeah, the, the ball that swings and hits it and goes, you know, yeah. The, bu the building itself is changing moment by moment and eventually it's going to collapse by itself. But there can be another cause introduced that makes it collapse earlier, okay? But with the mind stream, there is nothing, you know, that can make the continuity of mind cease altogether, Okay, you can cease the continuity of the building, yeah, but you can't cease the continuity of, of consciousness because there doesn't exist anything that can stop it, okay? But the mind, the consciousness is changing moment by moment, okay? So the wisdom realizing selflessness eradicates afflictive obscurations but it cannot destroy the clear and cognizant nature of the mind. Okay. For this reason, uh, majamikas 
And most Chittamajans assert that after a person attains perinirvana, that's the nirvana after death, or that, that after an arhat attains perinirvana, that's the nirvana after death, the continuum of the purified aggregates exists. Okay, so the aggregates are no longer under the control of afflictions and karma, but there is now a continuity of the uh, purified aggregates. Okay, so we should change in that line instead of person attains perinirvana, um, say arhat. Okay, so these perfect, these purified aggregates are the basis of designation of that arhat. Thus, this person does not cease to exist when he or she attains parinirvana. Motivated by compassion, bodhisattvas who have overcome afflictive obscurations continue to take rebirth in cyclic existence. They do that by the power of their compassion. Okay. Oh, it says that in the next sentence. Motivated by compassion, bodhisattvas who have overcome afflictive obscurations continue to take rebirth in cyclic existence. The continuity of the Buddha's mind stream also remains forever. Okay? The arhats, the continuity of their mind stream, also continues. They stay in a in a single-pointed meditation on the nature of reality. Yeah. At some point, they may uh, come out of that meditation and join the bodhisattva path. Okay, But their consciousness uh, doesn't cease. So from the viewpoint of tantrayana, after an arhat passes away, the subtlest mind-wind combination continues to exist, and the person is posited in dependence on this. That self is called an arhat. Someone who has attained full awakening obtains the four bodies. Here body doesn't mean physical body, it means a collection, like a body of knowledge. So uh, someone who has attained full awakening obtains the four bodies of a Buddha. Since the mind's ultimate nature is emptiness, the emptiness of the awakened mind becomes the nature truth body of a Buddha, okay, which is the final true cessation of a Buddha, um, of a Buddha, the final true cessation on a Buddha's mind stream, and the emptiness of that Buddha's mind. The subtlest mind becomes the wisdom truth body, the omniscient mind of the Buddha. The subtlest win becomes the form bodies of the Buddha, the enjoyment body and the emanation bodies. And an Arya Buddha, a person who is a Buddha, exists by being merely designated in dependence on these four bodies. Okay? So if you're not familiar what the four Buddha bodies are, uh, sometimes they talk about two, sometimes they talk about three, here they talk about four, okay? If we talk about two, we talk about the form bodies. Those are the bodies that the Buddha appears in uh, to communicate with sentient beings. 
uh, and the the dharmakaya, the uh, truth body, is the second body, and that's the mind of the Buddha and the um, the nature of that Buddha's mind. So you can then take the form body and divide it in two. You have the enjoyment bodies. That's how the Buddha appears to um, bodhisattvas in the Pure Lands. And the emanation bodies. So that's like bodies like Shakyamuni Buddha, how he appears to ordinary sentient beings like us. Then the Dharmakaya can be divided into two. So you have the uh, wisdom Dharmakaya, which is the Buddha's omniscient mind. And you have the nature Dharmakaya, which is the emptiness of that Buddha's mind and the true cessations on that Buddha's mind. Okay, that's how you get four. So the uh, emptiness of the Buddha's mind is the ultimate nature of that mind. Yeah, the true cessations, we'll get into this later when we talk about true cessations, but the true cessations is the uh, cessation of different levels of afflictions that, uh, you know, obscure the mind. Okay? There's a glossary in the back of the book if you come up with terms that uh, you haven't heard before. I'm trying to explain some of them here. Okay, now, next topic, the four truths. So, in classical India... Many spiritual traditions spoke about the unawakened state of samsara and the awakened state of nirvana, each tradition having its own description of dukkha, its origins, its cessation, and the path leading to that cessation. Samsara means to be reborn with karmically conditioned aggregates. Okay. Specifically, samsara is our five aggregates subject to clinging and appropriated due to afflictions and karma. Okay, so what are the five aggregates? One is the body, four constitute the mind. Okay, so the form aggregate is this thing. Okay, the uh, Mental aggregates, the mind part of it, uh, has four aggregates. So the first one there is feeling. That's the feelings of uh, pain, pleasure, and a new, neutral feeling. Uh, discriminations, that is a mental factor that can tell the difference between different actions, or different objects, sorry. The third mental factor is uh, called, uh, we, it often has different names, but we called it the miscellaneous factors because it's everything that's not in the other four, okay? So it includes different um, mental factors that are our emotions, different views, uh, different mental factors that facilitate cognition of objects, it includes uh, things that are abstract composites, uh, like time and, you know, things like this. So that's the fourth one. Yeah. Oh, 
hold on. And then the fifth aggregate, which is the fourth mental aggregate, is primary consciousnesses. So those are the, the six primary consciousnesses that correspond with the six objects and the six sense faculties. Okay, so the visual consciousness, yeah, associated here. Auditory consciousness, associated with the ear. Olfactory consciousness, associated with your nose. Um, gustatory consciousness, with your tongue. Tactile consciousness, with all your bodily sensations. And the mental consciousness, which has a very broad uh, objects that they can um, perceive that uh, are not necessarily objects of the other five senses. So this really opens up the field of what we can be aware of. It's not just physical things through physical senses. Karmic seeds fit in anywhere? Yeah, the karmic seeds fit in the fourth. Okay, so that's why it's called miscellaneous. Okay, they're they're not form. Yeah, they're not consciousnesses type. You know, minds or mental factors, uh, but they are impermanent phenomena. So they go in the fourth uh, aggregate. So time is um, a mental factor. No, when we talk about there's two ways of talking about the five aggregates. One way is it includes all impermanent phenomena. When we talk about the five aggregates as a way of dividing all impermanent phenomena, then time is an impermanent phenomena, so it goes in the fourth aggregate. When we talk about the five aggregates as the basis of designation of the person, then it means just our aggregates, not anybody else's aggregates, not all the other impermanent phenomena. So you have to see in which context we're talking about the five aggregates. Okay, so samsara yeah, is not the external world. The real meaning of samsara is our five aggregates that are born under the power of afflictions and karma. The chief affliction being ignorance and its good buddy, uh, craving. Okay, so uh, these aggregates. Okay, in the in the Pali tradition, it uh, says that the aggregates are subject to clinging. In the Mahayana tradition, the same word upadana is uh, translated as appropriated. Okay, so it gives slightly different connotations. Yeah. So appropriated, the, the way it's explained, as the self uh, takes these aggregates under the influence of ignorance. But that way of explaining it is open to misinterpretation because when we hear that the self appropriates the aggregates, it makes it sound like first there's a self and then it appropriates it takes the aggregates, and that's not the way it is, okay? The Pali tradition, yeah, when it says the aggregates are subject to clinging, yeah, I think that gives a much better connotation 
because we cling to these aggregates. Yeah, the self under the influence of ignorance and craving clings to this body and mind. And, you know, that clinging just keeps on producing one samsaric rebirth after another after another. Okay? So you may come across some sentences that say appropriated, some sentences that say the clung to aggregates. So just realize it's different translations of the same term that can mean slightly different things. Okay? So when we say that an Arya Bodhisattva can be reborn in samsara to be a benefit to others, Mm -hmm. it seems like we're really talking about they can be born where they interact with people that are under in samsara, but that their aggregates are not necessarily samsaric. Well, they they their aggregates for the bodhisattvas below the eighth bumi. Uh, they're not totally purified aggregates, okay? Even above the eighth booty, bumi, the eighth ground, there's still defilements with those aggregates. So they, only the Buddha has completely purified aggregates. But the uh, bodhisattvas, after the path of seeing, are not born in uh, samsara due to the power of ignorance. Although they have not uh, eradicated all of the ignorance. Okay. What happens uh, is that the their awareness of emptiness is so strong that any of the karmas that could previously have uh, resulted in a, in a rebirth are now they can't ripen because their conditions for their ripening, yeah, the craving and the clinging are not present or are, or are too weak to to lead to a, re, a samsaric rebirth. So then even though their their aggregates are not completely purified, they're not appropriated due to afflictions and karma. Um, they're in this weird state where they're not really samsaric and they're not totally purified, you know? The, the, the karma may have something to do with it. I think many of them can choose their rebirths. But, you know, of course, there's going to be a variety of degrees of, of arias. They're not all the same. Okay. Okay, so liberation is freedom from the bondage of rebirth with the polluted aggregates impelled by afflictions and karma. Polluted means under the influence of ignorance. Okay, And sometimes it means under the influence of ignorance or the latencies of ignorance. So liberation comes about by ceasing the ignorance and karma that cause cyclic existence. The mind renouncing dukkha An intent on liberation is a precious mind that needs to be cultivated with care. Renunciation does not mean relinquishing happiness. It is the aspiration for liberation, the determination to seek a higher and more enduring happiness than samsara can offer. So we're renouncing dukkha. 
renounce, and we're going for uh, a higher grade of happiness than samsara, which all of its, you know, uh, vagrancies can provide. So the first teaching the compassionate Buddha gave was on the four truths, true dukkha, true origins, true cessations, and true paths. This can also be translated as the truth of dukkha, the truth of origins, the truth of cessations, and the truth of paths. There's different translation terms. These four truths cover our present state, one that is replete with unsatisfactory conditions. That's the first truth. And their aggregates, the second truth. Their origins, sorry. So that's the second truth. And uh, the four truths present an, an alternative, which is nirvana or true cessations, and the path leading to that. Okay, so two on the side of uh, afflictions, there are the, the afflictive side, and two on the purified side. Uh, the Buddha did not create the four truths. He simply described the truth about samsara and its origins, as well as the truth that a path exists to cease those that bring about uh, the path um, that ceases those and brings about nirvana. Um, okay, so we were, we may wonder why these truths are sometimes called four noble truths. After all, what is noble about suffering? Okay, so here the word noble means one, they were directly uh, realized and taught by the noble ones, the Arya beings uh, who have realized the ultimate nature of reality directly. Okay, so noble there refers to the Arya beings and what they have seen through their purified consciousnesses, okay? The second meaning of noble is that knowing these truths ennobles us by enabling us to become aryas. So how do we become an arya? By understanding deeply these four truths. And they are called truths because it is true that dukkha and its origins are to be abandoned, and it is true that cessations and paths are to be adopted. Okay, no fake news regarding those, no alternative facts regarding those. Okay, these four are true according to the perception of the Aryas, and they are true in the sense that they form a non-deceptive explanation that will lead us beyond suffering. Okay, so we can rely on these four truths um, because they are non-deceptive. And when we understand them deeply, that will lead us beyond uh, the, the dukkha of samsara. So the Buddha spoke of the four truths in many sutras. In the first turning of the Dharma wheel, that's the first uh, set of teachings that the Buddha gave, the Buddha presented the four truths by means of three cycles. Okay, 
So the first cycle, in the first cycle, he then identified the nature of each truth. Okay. Then in the second, he spoke of how to engage with each truth. And then in the third, he described the result of realizing each truth. Okay, so the nature, how to engage with each one, and the result of realizing it. Okay, so now he's going to explain what those, those three mean. So the nature of each truth. In terms of their nature, true sufferings, or true dukkha, are the polluted aggregates that are principally caused by afflictions and polluted karma. More broadly, okay, true dukkha consists of polluted bodies, minds, environments, and the things that we use and enjoy. Okay, so a more restricted definition of true dukkha, yeah, polluted bodies and minds are aggregates. Yeah, that's the real samsara. But also included in true dukkha, are the things that we contact in samsara, our external environment, the, you know, the gong, the thermos, the microphone, the table, yeah? Now, you might say, well, why are these things considered true dukkha? Okay, because our mind can become, can generate afflictions with respect to these things. Okay, I can look at the thermos and go, wow, what an incredibly beautiful color this is. And it's so useful, and it's much better than the thermoses, you know, that I can't drink directly from because they have a different kind of spout. This thermos is really great. And I get attached to it. I much prefer it to other thermoses. Okay? So that's why it's called uh, a true dukkha, because my mind can get attached to that. Mm -hmm. So in the uh, compendium of knowledge, Asanga says, if one asks what is true dukkha, it is to be understood both in terms of the sentient beings who are born as well as the inhabit the habitats in which they are born. So this world, you know, came about due to many causes and conditions. This will we'll, we'll cover in chapter 6, the one I told you where I, I asked His Holiness those questions directly. Okay, so there's the physical causes of this universe. But His Holiness says that before, that as this universe was forming, the karma of sentient beings who were likely to be born there influenced how the universe formed. And he gave the example of if you are constructing a building, you aren't living in that building yet, but your mind influences how the building is constructed. Okay, so it's similar in that way. 
So the body and mind are internal true dukkha because they are in the continuum of a person. Okay, that's called internal when they're a part of the continuum of the person. Okay, uh, the environment and the things around us are external true dukkha, which are not a part of a person's continuum. So the piece of paper, the clock, the Ricola cough drops, all these things, okay? All true origins are also true dukkha. So true origins, all, you know, ignorance, anger, attachment, these kinds of things. They are also true dukkha because they are part of our five aggregates, okay? Um, although not everything that is a true, that is true dukkha is true origins. This thermos is not a true origin. It does not cause samsara. It's not an affliction, okay? All afflictions are unsatisfactory, but our bodies and our habitats, which are unsatisfactory, are not the causes of samsara, okay? They are a product of, you know, the product of the causes of samsara. So what propels this process of uncontrollably and repeatedly taking the psychophysical aggregates of a being of one of the three realms? Okay, so here samsara is divided into three realms. We'll get into this um, more in a later chapter. So the first one is the desire realm because uh, it's so-called because the beings in it are very attached to sense objects, okay? And when you think of it, this is us, isn't it? We're always engaged with external things, judging them, wanting them, pushing them away, yeah? The form realm, the second realm, is a realm that is that beings are born into when they attain uh, a certain level of concentration called the dhyanas or jhanas in in Pali. Okay, so there they have uh, it, they don't have a physical body like this, but they have a, a body, you know. And then the formless realms, they don't have uh, uh, a body. Tantra says they still have the the wind but they, uh, they don't have a, a body as, you know, as we usually think of it. Um, and those born, beings are born there because of even deeper states of samadhi, okay? So those are the three realms of samsara. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what propels this, yeah? Um, it is the true origins of dukkha. Okay, so here he's defining each of the four truths. Okay, afflictions and polluted karma. Okay, the chief affliction that is the root of samsara is the ignorance grasping inherent existence that is a mental factor that apprehends phenomena as existing in the opposite way then they actually exist. Okay? So things exist dependently 
Ignorance apprehends them as existing independently, totally in the opposite way. That's what the next sentence says. Whereas all phenomena exist dependently, ignorance apprehends them as existing independently. The Tibetan term for ignorance is marigpa, means, and it means not knowing. Okay, rigpa means aware or knowing. Ma is a negative. So even its name implies something undesirable that disturbs the mind and interferes with happiness and fulfillment. Since the cause of cyclic existence is inauspicious, its effects are bodies, habitats, and experiences in cyclic existence will not bring stable joy. So the result of the origin of samsara, the causes, it's in accord with the result, things that are in the nature of dukkha. Okay. So ignorance narrows the mind, obscuring it from seeing the multifarious factors involved in existence. From ignorance stems various distorted conceptualizations that foster the arising of all other afflictions, especially the three poisons of confusion, attachment, and animosity. Okay, so ignorance is the root, yeah. There are different ways of seeing ignorance according to the different Buddhist tenet systems. We'll get to that, okay? But ignorance makes the mind like this, and it clouds and obscures the mind so that we cannot know things as they are. Okay, it produces uh, other conceptualizations. For example, we think that things that are impermanent are permanent. We think that things that are impure or foul are pure. We think that things that are the nature of uh, dukkha are actually happiness. And we think that things that lack a self have a self. So those are the four distorted conceptualizations, yeah. And then those, you know, all ferment together with ignorance, and then we have the seeds of our afflictions, and then we get confusion, attachment, and animosity. Yeah, those are the three poisons, the big ones, okay? Then each of those has various kinds of um, other afflictions that are affiliated with it. So with attachment, we have, uh, we have greed, uh, we have uh, craving and clinging, and, uh, you know, all that kind of sticky stuff. With animosity, we have anger, hatred, outrage, belligerence, and so on. With confusion, we just have, we, we can't, uh, we don't know what to practice and abandon. Okay. Now, having said that, the word confusion in Tibetan is timug. Sometimes it means the ignorance that is ignorant of karma. We don't know what to practice and abandon. Sometimes it means 
The same, it means the ignorance that doesn't know the nature of reality. So again, you have to see, you know, in different contexts, what the words ignorance and confusion are referring to in that context. That's just a little warning. Okay. And afflictions, in turn, create karma that propels samsaric rebirth. So karma are actions, mental, verbal, physical actions. And they leave, um, for lack of a better word, some kind of trace of their having existed. Here we're calling it the seeds of karma. And these um, are on the mind stream. But again, the mind stream is not anything physical. So don't think of the mind stream, here's this physical thing, and then leaves of the leaves of the karmic, of the seeds of karma are falling on it. No, it's not like that. All these things are, are not physical uh, items. Okay, so in the context of the four truths, the Buddha identifies craving as the principal example of the origin of dukkha to highlight its prominent role. So although ignorance is the root, craving is the principal example. Okay, so there used to be this thing, remember back in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, there was a song, Love Makes the World Go Round, okay? From a Buddhist viewpoint, the world is samsara. What makes it go around? Craving. Craving is that prominent thing that makes us take one rebirth after another. Okay? That doesn't mean ignorance. We're not ignoring ignorance. It's just emphasizing the unique role that craving plays. So true cessations are the exhaustion of true dukkha and true origins. From the prasangika viewpoint, prasangika is the most uh, refined uh, of the tenant systems. From their viewpoint, uh, they are the emptiness of an Arya's mind, specifically the purified aspect of the ultimate nature of a mind that has abandoned some portion of obscurations through the force of a true path. Got it? Okay, let me explain what that means. When, <laughs> yeah, we went over, this was gone over many times with His Holiness, yeah, okay. So a true path, yeah, is uh, the the um, most the best true paths are the ones that we really emphasize. Although there are many, is the wisdom re realizing reality, and so we have all these layers of obscurations, yeah, and we have acquired obscurations, innate obscurations. Among the innate ones, they're divided according to those three realms, the obscurations of the desire realm, the ones of the form realm, the ones of the formless realm. And then within that, there's different gradations 
of uh, of afflictions. So when we re you know when somebody realizes emptiness directly, then they begin to eliminate these gradations of afflictions. It isn't that you realize emptiness and bongo, all your afflictions are gone. I mean, they've been with us since beginningless time. It's going to take a while, yeah, to uh, obliterate them. So we start, you know, uh, uh, using that true path that realizes emptiness to eliminate different layers of obscurations. And so according to the different layers of obscurations that you eliminate, you obtain different stages of the path, okay? And at the same time, and your mind, the tr those true cessations of that portion of the obscurations, okay, that's what, I mean, the, there's many true cessations because each level of obscuration, when it's eliminated, has its own true cessation, okay? So as the mind is getting purified by eliminating those various levels of obscuration, the emptiness of the mind, which is one nature with the mind, is also being purified. Now, you might say, but emptiness was never polluted by the defilements to start with. So how can emptiness be defiled and how can it be purified? So this was my question, yeah. <laughs> so the answer is that the, when the mind is polluted, the emptiness, the very nature of the emptiness is, of course, pure. It is not affected by the afflictions. But because it is one nature with that consciousness, when the consciousness is covered by obscurations, the emptiness of that mind is also covered by obscurations. Because we can't see the emptiness of the mind directly because those obscurations are in the way. So each time we eliminate a layer of obscurations or a level of obscurations from the mind, the emptiness of that mind that is one nature with it is also purified, okay? Even though it was never actually polluted to start with because those afflictions never entered into uh, the nature of the mind, and they actually didn't enter into the nature of the conventional mind either. Okay? So, yeah, so true cessations, the pure, the em no, I'm sorry, the emptiness of an Arya's mind is the purified aspect of the ultimate nature, the emptiness of a mind, that has abandoned some portion of obscurations through the force of a true path. So it says through the force of a true path because when the wisdom of re uh, realizing emptiness 
cut the the uh, those afflictions so that they cannot no longer arise. Different states of samadhi repress the afflictions. Okay, and they sometimes use the word abandon to mean repress or suppress, sorry, suppress the afflictions. But suppressed afflictions are not eradicated from the mind stream, okay? The only way to eradicate them is by the force of that wisdom realizing emptiness. The the, uh, mind of samadhi cannot eradicate them. Okay. So true paths, he's still describing the nature of uh, the first aspect here, the nature of the four truths. So true paths are Arya's realizations informed by the wisdom directly realizing selflessness. Okay. With the exception of ethical restraints or precepts, uh, the, like the Pradimoksha precepts, that are imperceptible forms, true paths are consciousnesses. We often think we hear the word true path and we think of it as an external. We are following the path and we talk about it like an external path. We are following that path. Actually, the term path refers to a consciousness. Okay, so with the exception of those ethical restraints that are imperceptible forms, you'll remember imperceptible forms from the last chapter of the previous volume, okay? Um, Then all the other true paths are consciousnesses. So Pali Sutras emphasize the Eightfold Path which is subsumed into the three higher trainings as the true path. Of the eight, right view, the wisdom realizing selflessness, is what actually cuts the root of cyclic existence. Okay, so the four truths comprise two pairs, each pair having a cause and effect relation. So, We start out with true dukkha, which is the result of the second one, true origins. And then with the second pair, we start out with true cessations, which come about due to true paths. Now you may may say, well, why don't we start with the cause and then its result and explain it that way? Because first, to really get engaged with the Dharma, we have to realize our cessation of being locked in true dukkha. Only then... Oh, our true cessation. Oh, sorry, our true situation. Okay. Our true situation of being locked in true dukkha. Then we start thinking, oh, what caused this? Then we go to true origins. Then we think, is there a path, you know, is there a way out of it? Does there exist a state that is free from all this dukkha? Yes, true cessations. That's why it's third. Then is there something that can bring about these true cessations? Yes, true paths. 
Okay? So it's two things that look like cause and effect, but the second pair is not actually cause and effect, but we'll get into that in the next few pages. Okay. So true origins cause true dukkha, and true paths bring about true cessations. Okay, why do we say bring about? Technically speaking, true cessations, uh, or the ultimate true cessation of nirvana, is not an effect because it is unconditioned and permanent. Okay, permanent things do not have causes. Okay, true cessations are, do not have causes they, because they are an absence of the afflictions. Okay. However, attaining nirvana is due to a cause, which is the true path. So nirvana is permanent, but attaining nirvana depends on a cause. You have to practice the true path. The true path is impermanent. Okay. It functions to destroy those afflictions. Yeah. The, the destruction of those afflictions so that they can never arise again does not change. And that is true, true cessations. Okay. Then the Buddha goes into more depth about the nature of each truth in the establishment of mindfulness sutra. Okay. Before we start that, let me see if there's any questions. Yeah. Uh, so you, going back to the idea of, you know, this table is true dukkha, mm-hmm. um, because we can generate afflictions in relation to it. So Devadatta became afflicted towards the Buddha. So is the Buddha true dukkha? No. Yeah, that question always comes up too. Um, <laughs> yeah, because we don't... We don't really get it, you know, the Buddha is something that we should be drawn to, okay? So when we see the good qualities of the Buddha, we're not overestimating them. And this overestimation, this exaggeration, is what gives forth uh, attachment. But we don't exaggerate that with respect to the the Buddha. But if we get angry towards the Buddha? Then that's your problem, isn't it? Yeah? What you're getting angry towards is not the Buddha. You're getting angry towards your misconceptions about the Buddha. But similarly, would I not be getting attached towards my conceptions about the thermos? So I don't see... Yeah, except the thermos does not have the good qualities you're imputing on it. The Buddha does have the good qualities, yeah, that you're imputing. It does not have the bad qualities that you're imputing. Okay. Yes, Mr. Question Box? (laughs) I'll actually leave that one aside despite not being convinced. Um, But going back a farther way... (laughs) Uh, we talked about the substantial causes briefly, 
And it kind of sounded like you said that there could be more than one substantial cause for something. Yeah, there's usually, we usually pinpoint one substantial cause, like the wood would be the substantial cause of the, of the table. The nails that hold it together would be a cooperative condition. Yeah, but maybe you have something that is made of two different kinds of material. So then you have two different, you know, so substantial like in, in the example of like a cake, all the ingredients that make up the yeah. batter would be the substantial cause? Pretty much, you know. The flour would probably be the main one, but some cakes have almost as much sugar as they have flour. <laughs> a liquid, it's not a cake. <laughs> yeah. So it's okay to have more than one. I think it's what yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yes? So when you talk about wisdom realizing selflessness that cuts the root of cyclic existence, does that mean the same thing as realizing emptiness? Yes. Yeah. So you realize emptiness. You use that realization, that wisdom mind, to purify the mind of the afflictions and their seeds. Okay. And then later on, the latencies. Uh-huh. And then on page 12, on the second line, when, where it says the emptiness of an Arya's mind, does uh, emptiness here refer only to the emptiness of inherent existence or yeah. also to the lack of afflictive obscurations? No, it's referring to the emptiness of inherent existence. Here. Um, and then going back to the section on bodhisattvas and how they take rebirth, um, uh -huh. someone's asking, can a bodhisattva mind manifest in multiple realms simultaneously like a Buddha mind can? Um, bodhisattvas can make many emanations, okay? Again, there isn't just one level of bodhisattva. You know, there's men, and here we have to be talking about Arya Bodhisattvas. Those are the ones that can, you know, make different manifestations. And, and the ability to do that increases as they uh, purify the mind by eliminating more and more obscurations. But the Buddha has, is able to do that spontaneously without effort. Bodhisattvas still have to exert effort. Buddhas can uh, emanate as many, you know, they do it spontaneously and many, many bodhisattvas, you know, they have to increase their ability to do that and the number of manifestations too. And lastly, where is the exit to the Pure Lands in the Bodhisattva sequence? Okay. <laughs> so there's many different Pure Lands some pure lands are, you have to be on the eighth ground of a bodhisattva to be born there. If you're talking about Amitabha's pure lands, this is one of the kindnesses of Amitabha, is he accepts ordinary people, okay? So you don't have to present your certificate of being an Arya. Um, you know, you can, you can get in there with just the, the cheap pass of, of, uh, of an ordinary being. However, that doesn't mean that just saying the Buddha's name is going, is enough to get you reborn in Amitabha's pure land. There are many, many causes you have to create to be born there.
Okay, so don't think that it's a cheap way to get to awakening. Yeah, it's a compassionate way from Amitabha, but there's many causes and conditions that have to be in place for that. Uh, going back to the Vibhasaka assertion that uh -huh. when an arhat passes away, the continuum ceases to exist, that sounds like nirvana is the same as non-existence, which is very different than saying nirvana is, you know, true happiness. Yes. I was wondering if you could clarify that. Yes, this is the tenant of the Vibhasaka. It's not the tenants that we hold, Okay. For practitioners of the Vibhasaka, it's not that it, that act is what actually happens, you know, but it is for those people, the idea of just ceasing samsara just gives them so much help, hope and inspiration. Okay. That they're content with thinking that's what they'll attain. Okay. For bodhisattvas, uh, that's, that's not particularly appetizing. Okay. Bodhisattvas, you know, are really driven to be a benefit to sentient beings. Is this enduring sense of self that we have an innate obscuration? Or is it a flick? This, this sense of it, it depends how you define in, enduring. If you just think of it as uh, permanent, then that would be uh, an acquired obscuration. If you're thinking of it as an inherently existent me, one that is just really me, the essence of meness that can never be destroyed it, it's the real thing that's me, then you have grasping at inherent existence. Oh, other questions? Okay, because I don't want to read the next thing. I guess I could read it and then tomorrow read it again. Okay, we'll plant seeds by reading it once. I will, and then we'll plant seeds again tomorrow morning. Okay, so this is what it says in the establishment of mindfulness sutta in the uh, Pali Canon. Okay, so the Buddha says, And what monastics is the Arya truth of dukkha? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are dukkha. Encountering the undesired is dukkha. Being separated from the desired is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So that's it, folks. Nothing good in that. And what monastics is the Arya truth of the origin of dukkha? It is that craving that gives rise to rebirth, bound up with delight and attachment, seeking fresh delight now here, now there. That is to say, sensual craving, craving for existence and craving for non-existence. Okay, 
So we certainly have that, don't we? And what monastics is the Arya truth of the cessation of dukkha? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, abandoning, letting go, and detachment from it, craving. Okay? And what monastics... So it's, it's not just the cessations of craving, it's with all the other obscurations that go along with that. And what monastics is the Arya truth of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha? It is just this Arya Eightfold Path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Okay, so that's a pretty succinct, we're talking about the nature here of the four. And then uh, then His Holiness is going to explain what those are, yeah, and, uh, and then we'll keep going with the other, um, the other ones too. So by the way, when we're talking about the four truths here, we're doing it from the viewpoint that is in common with all the Buddhist schools, okay? So we're basic, the view in common means that it's shared by the Vaibhasakas, the Satantrakas, the Yogacharyas, the Madhyamakas, okay? At certain points, we will also talk about just the Prasangika view, yeah? because sometimes we're more familiar with that and it, it can be very different than the common view, okay? Because, for example, uh, according to the common view accepted in general by the tenant systems, as the, the Tibetans define the tenant systems, not all the Buddhists in the world define the tenant systems like this, but as the Tibetans do, um, uh, self, uh, grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is uh, ignorance, okay? That's according to some. But even the Vibhasakas uh, would say, no, it's not an act of grasping. It is a, a cloudiness of the mind such this, that we can't see. So there's just many interpretations, Okay. Clarification, was it the Buddha that explicitly said that nirvana was analogous to the extinguishing of a light in a lamp? Or is that an interpretation? Of the, of the, uh, like, like a lamp being extinguished due to the, to the, essence, the lack of fuel. Yeah. Is that explicitly yeah. the way in which... Yeah, you... that's in the sutras. But he's speaking to a certain kind of disciple there. Okay? So remember, the Buddha was a very skillful teacher... And he sussed out his audience and the label of the level of uh, their disposition, their interest, what they're capable of understanding, what suits them at that particular moment of their development as spiritual beings. He talks to that. And so he will say different things to different people. If you don't understand that, then you think that sometimes the Buddha contradicts himself. 
but he's not. Okay. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a little kid, remember the long road trips that you sometimes uh, took with your parents? Even when you're a little kid, uh, a two-hour road trip is like really long. Yeah, nowadays people drive two hours to their job and two hours home. But I remember being a kid and like two hours to drive from home to that place. Uh. And so your parents tell you, we're almost there. Yeah, you've gone, uh, you know, kind of a little, you've gone 10 miles on the highway. We're almost there. Yeah, we're not actually almost there. But they tell us that so that we'll, you know, we'll settle down. We won't get too antsy, you know? And then a little bit later, are we there yet? Yeah, remember? Are we there yet? Yeah. Well, we're almost there. Yeah. And we may stop and get something to eat before we're there. Oh, good. Then that makes it, you know. Okay. So it's like that. <laughs> okay. So we'll close uh, now.